Empty statements, pious words do not fill empty stomachs and clothe cold backs. Any declaration or profession of faith that does not result in a changed life, James is arguing, is a false declaration. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the Book of Romans, and in the second half of chapter 3 today, we find the definitive affirmation that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and there are no deeds, no works that alone, or even in combination with faith, will result in salvation. And yet, we'll also look today to the book of James, which seems to contradict this truth. The name of our message is A Theological Collision. Take the Word of God, would you? Romans chapter 3, as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this great epistle. We're coming to a verse this morning that is very, very controversial. In the 1500s, there was a massive theological collision that caused an explosion of whose effect continue to this day. But it was a necessary collision because the organized church at the time had become so corrupt. And it was really a partial fulfillment of what Jesus had said when he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. The Reformation is a powerful illustration of how Christ, among many other ways, has kept that promise. The Reformation sought to bring Bible-based Christianity back into the church because the organized church of the day had become largely legalistic, superstitious, and was mired in superstition and corruption. And so a collision needed to occur, and it was a healthy collision. And it was a collision over how it is that God saves a person. Does God save a person partially or completely through works, or does He save him by grace alone? Now, when we think of the Reformation, Remember, number one, it didn't happen all at once. It took place over a long period of time. And understand, too, that though the Reformers are the ones who often get the press, God had always had His people since He originated His church on the day of Pentecost. There are congregations just like this that were not a part of the organized church. But there were some who were part of the organized church at the day, the Roman Catholic Church, and they protested, and so their name was given to them by the Catholics as Protestants. And so when we think of the Reformers, again, we think of people like O'Calvin and Knox and Latimer and Melanchthon and Cramner and Bullinger, but probably the most famous of all the Reformers was a man by the name of Martin Luther. In 1505, he lost a very close friend through sudden death. And a short time later, he found himself in a violent thunderstorm where he thought he would perish. And after those experiences, he began to look within for inner peace, and he began to wonder, well, what would happen if I had died? And he feared death greatly. He had read the Latin Bible in law school, but like I suppose the Ethiopian eunuch, he needed someone to come alongside and open it up to him. But through this search, he he left law school and entered the ministry and became an Augustinian monk in 1505. Uh, Luther didn't really understand at this point the significance of Christ's death and his resurrection. So he thought favor with God through prayer, through fasting, through good deeds, through penance. In fact, on one occasion, they came into Luther's room and they found him passed out from exhaustion. 
1507, he was ordained as a priest, and in 1508, he began to teach at the University of Wittenberg. And while serving at the university, uh, Luther had the opportunity in 1510 to go to Rome. It had been a lifelong dream. So he went to Rome, hoping, of course, to find priests and cardinals and bishops that were godly and committed that could encourage him in his own walk with God. But instead, he found a corrupt church. He found men living in opulence and men teaching things that they didn't even believe themselves. So he went back to the University of Wittenberg or to the, and, and began to teach there in the city. And he was working through the book of Romans. And God began to open his eyes. In 1515, he read Romans 1.17, but the just shall live by faith. And God sparked something in his heart, and he writes in his commentary, in the introduction to his commentary on Romans, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through the open doors into paradise. And he realized for the first time in his life that salvation was not something to achieve, but something to receive, that it was God's gift. And so Luther's life was forever changed, and two verses of Scripture became his very favorite. Romans 1.17 and Romans 3.28. We're going to look at Romans 3.28 today. And of course, he saw the need for the church to reform as he began to understand salvation. And one of the things that was really a, a prod in his side was a man by the name of Johann Tetzel. Tetzel had come to the city of Wittenberg flying the Pope's flag, selling indulgences. You're not familiar with that term. An indulgence was basically a piece of paper signed and stamped by the Pope that could be bought in that day for a sum of money that guaranteed when you died, you would leave this earth, bypass purgatory, and go straight to heaven. Purgatory was a place in Catholic theology and continues to this day where a soul would be purged of its corruptness. And since, of course, man does not uh, totally... Uh, merit salvation as a gift, but it's partially earned in their theology, uh, he doesn't always do enough in this time. And so there's an inner period between earth and heaven where one goes to purgatory to suffer. And so the popular statement of the day from his preaching, Tetzel's preaching, was this, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And so they began to collect money from the sale of the indulgences to rebuild St. Peter's Cathedral, and really to allow the religious clergy to continue their life of opulence. And uh, I suppose there was a fervor for indulgences, and I thought about it this week, it's much like the fervor that Mormons have to baptize, be baptized for their dead relatives. If you know anything about Mormonism, one of the things they practice is baptism for the dead. And if you've ever looked at genealogical uh, sources, probably the best in the world, come out of organizations in Utah because Mormons research genealogical lines and they will be baptized not just for their own family members, but for other people. Maybe some of your dead relatives have been baptized by a Mormon. And they, of course, believe that, that when that happens, their friends will be able to go to heaven. Uh, one, one of the three heavens, <laughs> I'm not sure which one, but they, they get to go to heaven. Well, even so, there in the city of Wittenberg, Germany, you had all these devoted followers wanting to do something for their loved ones. In fact, there's a portion of Tetzel's sermon that remains to this day. Let me read it to you. He wrote, or he preached, you should know whoever has confessed and has contrite and puts alms or money into the box will have his sins forgiven. 
So why are you standing about idly? Run all of you for the salvation of your souls. Do you not hear the voices of your dead parents and other people screaming and saying, have pity on me, have pity on me. We are suffering severe punishment and pain from which you could rescue us. So the pilgrims rushed forward and they put their money in his box. Now that was the last straw for Luther. And that was combined with the relics that were on display all across the city of Wittenberg. Relics that ranged from supposedly a twig from the bush, the fiery bush that Moses stood at where God appeared, and they said even a tear from the face of the Lord Jesus when he cried and wept over the city of Jerusalem. And it was this that caused Luther to tack to the door there at the church in Wittenberg, 95 theses or 95 assertions where he felt like the organized Roman church had veered away from Holy Scripture. And one of the verses that was key to his thinking is the one we're studying today, Romans 3, 28. Now, I don't want to walk into it blindly. Let's look at this whole paragraph again. This is, I think, our fifth sermon in this section of Scripture, what Calvin called the heart and soul of the book of Romans. Many think this paragraph is the most important in all of the New Testament. If you remember, it unfolds like a sermon. There's an introduction, there's three points, and then there's a conclusion and an application where we're going to focus our time today. In verse 21, he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Remember, a key theme in Romans is the righteousness of God, and that's what you need to go to heaven. You have to be as righteous and as holy as God. And the righteousness of God has been made known, it's been witnessed to, and it's been witnessed in the law and the prophets. The Old Testament, which he's going to illustrate in the fourth chapter, which he's already echoed in, in Habakkuk 1.16 that he's already quoted in Romans 1.16, the prophet Habakkuk. The Old Testament teaches that man has never been saved by good deeds, but always on the basis of grace through faith. The righteousness of God, verse 22, that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, no matter who you are or what your background is, religious or non-religious. He says, for all have sinned, hamatano, all have missed the mark, and fall short of God's glory, of his perfection. Now, that's his introduction. And then he begins to add flesh to the skeleton. And so he makes three major points. The first point that we looked at concerned the source of justification. He says, being justified, verse 24, as a gift by his grace. The source of our justification is God in His grace. God declares us righteous apart from anything that we do solely on the basis of His grace. And then in the second half of verse 24 through the middle of verse 26, He gives us the means to justification, namely Christ and His cross, being justified as a gift by His grace. How? Through the redemption. We saw the word last week, redeem, means to buy back. And that we were not purchased with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb, the blood of Christ. Redeemed through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. The death of Christ was a public act as a propitiation in his blood through faith. We saw the word propitiate means to satisfy or to appease wrath. And so God gave of himself in Christ to save us from himself. The Lord Jesus shed his innocent, sinless blood to satisfy the wrath that our sin deserves, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation through faith. This was to demonstrate, he writes, his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. And so we saw another key word in the text was demonstration. The cross was a demonstration of the righteous character of God. 
where God couldn't just blanket sin and overlook sin. He passed over the sins of the Old Testament era in his forbearance. Why? Because he was looking forward to the time when Christ would offer himself on that cross. That's why God was able to receive men like David and Abraham and Noah and others, because he was looking ahead to the cross. And so he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, the time in which Paul writes the first century when the cross was actually enacted. And then we finally saw last time the means to our justification. It's not enough that Christ died. His death becomes no good for you until you believe, until you come through faith. He says for the demonstration, I say of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God wants to be both just and the justifier. He's the justifier. We don't justify ourselves because we can't. Our human righteousness falls short. We're the justifies, but God can declare us righteous while remaining just without violating his character because of the death of the Lord Jesus, whose benefits are accrued to your life when you put your faith in him. And then he gives us a conclusion and an application. This is new ground beginning now in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, you can see there on your note-taking outline, the message is entitled, A Theological Collision. And the collision takes place over verse 28, where Catholics and Protestants, maybe better today to say Catholics and Evangelicals, because most Protestants today do not represent historical Protestant theology, but where Catholics and Evangelicals collide. The Catholic Church's teaching has not changed in hundreds and hundreds of years. They still teach the same thing that they taught in Luther's day. Now look carefully at verse 27. He asks a question. Where then is boasting? Well, you could say, can a man boast? No, it's excluded. There is no boasting. By what kind of law? You see that little word law? It's not the capital law, L, like we've seen all the way through the text, but it's a small letter law because he's speaking here about a principle in fact, some translations render it, on what principle? On what principle is there no boasting of works? No, but by a law or a principle of faith. So you could read the last part of the, this verse. No, on a principle of faith, there is no boasting. You see what Paul is saying? Can anybody be proud? Can anyone put their chest out and say, look how good I am. Look what I've done to earn heaven. No, because God does not save us on that basis. By nature, we tend to be like the Pharisee in Luke 18, where we look to the things that we have done. So he says, where is boasting? By what kind of law? On what principle is boasting excluded? Of works? No, but by law or principle of faith. Since you cannot be saved by works, it shatters all bragging. So Paul says, we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. He'll also tell the Corinthians, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse 28, here's the verse of debate. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from 
anything you can do apart from the works of the law. Now, Luther wrote on this verse, all who are justified are justified for nothing or freely, you could say. And this is credited to no one but to the grace of God. God saves you by grace. Now, to put it in a theological formula, the Council of Trent said it in these terms, that your faith in Jesus Christ plus the good deeds you do will result in salvation. The Council of Trent, remember, was their response to Luther's 95 Theses. And they said that it was by faith plus works. The Reformers said it this way. They said, no, your faith in Christ alone, namely in his death and resurrection, results in salvation plus good works. So in Roman Catholic theology, which was reconfirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, though there, of course there are born-again Roman Catholics who through their own study of Scripture have come to, come to realize what the Bible says, and they don't necessarily realize they're disagreeing with their church, or sometimes they do. Most of the time when they do, they leave when they understand that. But uh, in either case, in Reformation theology, works are the fruit. They are the result of salvation. They're not the means to it. So how is it that Roman Catholics, obviously a lot of thinking people are there, how is it that they can say faith and works, and Protestants and evangelicals say no, faith alone and Christ alone? What verse do they use? How do they come to this conclusion? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I want you to see this morning, because they obviously can read the same text that you read, so how do we come to differing opinions? Well, it's a ver verse of Scripture found written by the Apostle James. Let me again read Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Notice, justified by faith apart from works. Now listen to what James 2.24 says. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul says you're justified by faith. James says you're justified by works and not faith only. So they argue faith plus works. And so how is it that these statements are written the way they are because they seem to be contradictory in nature? Well, hold your finger here and go to the book of James, would you? James chapter 2. Don't lose Romans 3. We're coming back. We're going to go back and forth through these two texts today. Um, now, there are differing positions on how these verses differ. Your liberal theologians would say, well, here's a definite contradiction in the Bible. Here's a mistake. And they will use verses like this to argue that the Bible is filled with errors and inconsistencies. Then there are groups apart from Roman Catholics like uh, the Mormons who would appeal to a verse like this and to say, well, you're saved by works, that it's not Christ alone. Works help save you. And they will repeatedly and habitually quote the Apostle James. Well, Roman Catholics would say there's no contradictions in the Bible. They would say, no, these two writers complement each other. And evangelical Bible-believing Christians would say, yes, they complement each other, but not in the way Roman Catholics think they complement each other. Now, look here at Romans 2. Um, we're going to step through the second part of this chapter. In verses 14 through 17, he's going to describe for us a dead faith. And then in verses 18 to 20, a demonic faith. And then in verses 21 to 26, a dynamic faith. By the way, that's your outline if you want to fill it in. So that if you fall asleep, you'll wake up, you'll at least know where we are, all right? James is going to ask and answer the question, what is the relationship between faith and works? 
What is the relationship between your creed and your conduct? What is the relationship between your belief and your behavior? An issue that Paul has already addressed, if you've been with us, in Romans chapter 2. So let's first look at dead faith. To introduce his argument, he asks some rhetorical questions that demand an answer, and we need to carefully study them. Notice question 1 in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Underline that word says. Circle it in your mind. He's describing a confessing believer who has words without works. What use of it? And of course, the anticipated answer is no use at all. Then he asks the second question in verse 14. Can that faith save him? Essentially, he's saying, can that kind of phony faith save him? And of course, the answer is no. Now, in Greek grammar, there's two ways in which you can frame a question. One way demands a positive answer. The other structure demands a negative answer. He's using the latter here. And so by the way he frames the question, he's in essence saying, absolutely not. That kind of phony faith cannot save a man. Now, the Bible teaches that salvation is the gift of God and that when you receive the free gift of God, which is eternal life, you become a new creation. You're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit who works on you comes to live inside of you, everything changes. And works are produced as the byproduct of salvation. Now, of course, spiritually speaking, faith is invisible. You cannot cut my body open and say, oh, yep, there's faith right there. No, it's invisible. How do you see a person's faith? The only way James argues that you can see a person's faith is by his works, by his changed life, which brings him to a third question where he illustrates the first two questions. It's a hypothetical situation. Notice verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, underscore that word says. Again, he's talking about profession. And notice he's talking about a brother or a sister. He's not talking about just anyone who shows up at your front door. The illustration is of a member of the body of Christ. Now, certainly, the Scripture does not limit our compassion to Christians only. But that's where it is to start, and that's where it focuses in the New Testament. Uh, Paul will write the Galatians, and he says, so then... While we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith, especially Christians. So when you see, when you become a member of the body of Christ, when you're born again, you begin to assume an unlimited liability for those who are members of that body. Now notice too, he says that this person does not have adequate food or clothing. He says without clothing, the word that's used in the original does not mean he's stark naked but someone who's insufficiently clothed. The thought is he's, he's cold due to a lack of proper clothing. And then the phrase, in need of daily food, does not indicate starvation, but someone who's hungry, someone who's without adequate food for the day. And then circle the word need in verse 15. And then in verse uh, 16, the word necessary. James is talking about someone who needs the basics. He's not talking about someone who comes to your door and says, you know, uh, I need a new Cadillac or a new stereo or a new DVD. No, he's talking about the absolute essentials of life. And the Greek tense that he uses describes an ongoing continual plight, indicating that this is a problem that's been going on. Uh, now, that's the context of his illustration. Look at verse 16 now in its entirety. When one of you says to this person in need of food and clothing, go in peace. 
be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give him what is necessary for the body, what use is that? So he's saying, what use is that? The King James says, what profit is it? The net, and I think the ESV both read, what good is it? No good at all. Can that kind of faith save him? The kind of faith that is never seen in practical works? And of course, the answer is no. Empty statements, pious words do not fill empty stomachs and clothe cold backs. Any declaration or profession of faith that does not result in a changed life, James is arguing, is a false declaration. Now, today we talk a lot in our evangelical churches about so-and-so made a profession of faith. And sometimes when people come down front, how do you know if it's genuine? Well, you can only take them at their word, but the real test of genuineness is time. Sometimes I'll meet someone and they'll say, I know he's been living with his girlfriend for a decade, but he made a profession of faith. Thank God my son's going to heaven. Maybe he's not going to heaven. Maybe he just has words without any reality. There's a lot of people like that in our day. And so now in having given his argument in verse 14 and then having illustrated it, notice verse 17 how he applies it. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Underscore those last two words, by itself. Faith by itself is nothing but words. It's nothing but a mere profession if it has not produced a changed life. That kind of faith is a dead faith. It is lifeless. It is unable to save. See, the person who simply says, be warm, be filled, has a verbal faith because he does nothing about it. Now, someone could read a text like that and say, man, I better get on the stick Start take, caring for people who are cold and feeding hungry people. Listen, James could have used 10,000 different illustrations. He could have used all kinds. Of, he could have said, the person who says, I'm a Christian, but he never fellowships or cares for God's people. He's got a dead faith. Why? Well, as John says, by this we know we pass out of death into life. We love the brethren. When you're born again and you're indwelt by the Spirit, you become family members with other born-again Christians. And one of the marks that you know God, that you love God, is that you love His people. You love His family. And so James is dealing with a person who says, yes, I'm going to heaven because I have faith in God. And the truth of the matter is, is it's not a genuine faith. And there are scores of people like that who fill our evangelical churches. Christ is not eminent in their thinking. He has nothing to do with their finances. He has not changed their crass vocabulary or their sensual dress. He has nothing to do with their plans, with their careers, with their reading material, with their schedules. Uh, they may give token attention on Sunday morning for an hour or so. But he has really not fundamentally changed their life. And James would argue it is a dead faith, it is intellectual only. Salvation is more than just empty faith. It's more than a profession without a change. And that's why the Bible tells us to examine ourselves to make sure we are of the faith. A justified life is going to be a changed life. And that change is going to be fleshed out in a change of behavior. For a copy of today's study entitled, A Theological Collision, Visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and look up program ROM16. You can also listen to it through our Search the Scriptures app 
available through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And of course, you can always call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. And when you contact us, please consider helping support this teaching ministry with a one-time gift or by becoming a Search the Scriptures Foundation Partner. Your gifts allow us to purchase airtime on radio stations around the country and throughout the world via the Internet. Tomorrow we continue our look at a theological collision. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.